Good morning. If you would, please open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We'll continue on in our study of Ecclesiastes this morning. As you're turning there, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, as you're turning there, uh, I want to remind you and encourage you that tonight at 6 o'clock we're coming together uh, for the Lord's Supper. Uh, Dr. Weldon will be uh, preaching and trust that uh, you'll make today a full Lord's Day and that you'll be back this evening for that special worship service. As you know, Solomon, who calls himself the preacher in this book of Ecclesiastes, has been pressing home a very sobering message to us over the last few months. His basic message is that life is meaningless. Now that's kind of a dramatic and, and dare I say drastic way of putting things, but he's forcing us to think about something that normally we probably would try to inoculate ourselves against. Solomon is saying that life without God, life without a real saving knowledge with and of Jesus Christ is meaningless. It's empty. It's vain. It doesn't make sense. It has no real purpose. There's really no sense to it at all. He wants you to feel the force of that thinking. He wants you to really be enthralled and to throw in yourself full force of what does that really mean. You know, he says there's all sorts of people that attempt to find meaning and satisfaction in this life while actually trying to live in such a way as to say that there is no God. And he argues that they never really find any meaning or find any satisfaction apart from God. And then he comes here to the last part of chapter 9 and chapter 10 that we're going to look at this morning. And if you've read ahead, you're sort of probably scratching your head and saying, thinking, Solomon, this doesn't make any sense. We've had this, this one theme going all along here about life is meaningless. Now all of a sudden we have this, this array of proverbs that we're looking at. And, and, you know, what do these proverbs really mean? And, and how are they supposed to impact our thinking? And the whole section we're going to be looking at this morning is about folly. And uh, how do we react, react when wisdom is rejected? And how... Does wisdom serve us, and how does it serve others? And what's the result of living foolishly? You read this, and you're like, Solomon, this just seems a little bit out of place at first. Well, we'll try to explain that today. Let's look at chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. And remember, this is the Word of God. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Verse 12 of chapter 9. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, 
and by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfume, perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, for calmness will lay great offense to the rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the grounds like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you this morning, we ask your spirit to pour out his wisdom into our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's a big week around our house, like it is for many of you. School gets started again this week. Not only do we have our youngest son, Jonathan, starting high school tomorrow, but we have our oldest son, Scott, heads off to college at the end of the week. With our first one headed off to college this week, I've been thinking a lot about something very profound I want to say to him before he leaves. You know, something that will make a mark on his life for the next four years. And as I've been struggling to come up with what it is I want to say, I've decided that uh, I'm going to talk to Scott uh, this morning. And I'm also going to talk to you other college students who are headed off, and to you high school students, and you middle school students, and you elementary school students, and parents, and grandparents, and friends. i got good news for you. You get to listen in this morning as a father, 
shares his heart with his son. So, Scott, pay attention this morning because it might save you a few lectures during the week this week. For what we're going to talk about this morning is profound importance. It is just about everything that I want to say to you this week. I'm going to save the really personal stuff when we get together for breakfast Friday morning in Chattanooga. Scott, as we reflect on our text this morning, we want to really discern a lot about wisdom and a lot about folly. Solomon, as you may remember, was asked what he would want from the Lord. And he didn't say he wanted great power, and he didn't say he wanted great strength, and he didn't say that he wanted great wealth. But the thing he wanted from the Lord was great wisdom. Last time I preached, I made mention of two questions that were found in chapter 6. I'm sure you all remember them. But these questions were, what I said, were the key to understanding the second part of Ecclesiastes. And the questions were, who knows what's best for us? And who knows what's in store for us? And we came to the answer, that the answer to those questions is Jesus. It will again be important for you to keep this in mind as, as we look at what could be a difficult text if we did not set it in its proper framing of these questions. In the end of chapter 9, the preacher is talking to God's people who have been made wise by his grace. He makes this point that earthly wisdom is good, but it is not an end in of itself to you as a person. Look at verse 11 in chapter 9. I saw again under the sun that the race is not to the swift, the battle not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men or of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. As much as wisdom is, is important, here the preacher stresses that, that earthly wisdom actually does have its limits. So just as Solomon has had great wisdom, but ended up failing in so many terrible ways, we need to learn not to trust in our own wisdom. We need to make sure that we don't take heed only of our own wisdom. Because we see things in this life that sometimes just do not make sense to us from our perspective. Have you ever had a, had a good idea that someone else has, has gotten the credit for? I suspect every one of us at some point has had that happen to us. Well, we have an example of that here Uh, beginning in verse 13, where he gives a story about how sometimes wisdom goes unheeded. We have this poor man, uh, but a wise man, who saves a city, but after the city is saved, no one even remembers him. He's, He's completely forgotten. And it was his wisdom, and not the weapons of war, that ended up saving the city. And And so what the preacher says to us, is you have, by God's grace, been made wise and righteous sometimes, but don't expect anybody to pat you on the back for that because it's not your own wisdom. It's, it's God's wisdom coming to you. Don't look for your ultimate reward here, for that's not the way God works. Wisdom is indeed superior to folly, but sometimes 
it is ignored. And sometimes it's thwarted by sinners. Therefore, we need to be ready to, be, to respond to rejection of wisdom in, in a biblical way. We're not told exactly how this man responds, but the idea for us would, would to, to keep reminding ourselves that our wisdom that we have is given to us by God. It's a gift to, to us. It's not something we created ourselves. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, verse 18 tells us, but sinners, but one sinner destroys much good. You all have heard the, the, the other proverb, one bad apple spoils a whole barrel. Well, this is not too much unlike that. We all need to realize that our actions have a real effect on more people than just ourselves. We need to watch our actions and our lips, lest they undo not just ourselves, but others that we may be associated with. Now, chapter 9 is summed up by saying wisdom is superior, but there is no guarantee that wisdom is going to ever be accepted by fools. And so he says we need to approach life knowing that we're going to have unexpected hard times and frustrations and indeed sometimes failures. Scott, as you experience trials which catch you off guard and you have frustrations, which, what you're going to have, every one of us are going to have them this school year. Look at them in light of the sovereign God shaping his child. It is the way a wise person looks at life. Looking at life apart from him, he says it cannot be anything but empty. Instead, if you look at life through the lens of his providence, even the trials of life have a way of becoming meaningful. As we turn our attention to chapter 10, this whole chapter, though it may seem like a rambling set of unconnected proverbs, it's actually a meditation on folly. The argument that, that the preacher's been carrying on from chapter 1 through chapter 9 is fools look at life in the wrong way, and the wise man looks at life in the right way. The fool looks at life apart from the living God. So that is the reason that he that he pauses here in chapter 10 and, and wants to talk a minute about folly and its danger. Starts off by saying that dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. This is a comparison between wisdom and folly, obviously. It should be read like this, as dead flies make a perfumer's oil give off stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. I want to point out two things to, to highlight uh, this verse here. Scott, the first thing is it reminds us that your character has a fragrance. In this passage, the wise man's character, his wisdom and honor, is compared to, to a perfumer's oil. But the fool's character is compared to that of dead flies. For the wise man, it's, it's a glorious, wonderful fragrance. But for the foolish man, it stinks like dead flies. So that's one of the messages of the proverb. But I'll tell you, that, that's not the main message of verse 1. The main message is this. A little folly 
can do a lot of damage. Son, don't underestimate folly. A small mistake can mess up a wonderful reputation. This is a lesson all of us have seen played out over and over again in our nation's capital and sadly to say in our churches. Men held in high esteem, letting a little folly ruin a life of work. Solomon is telling you, don't make light of folly. Folly can cause big trouble. Friends, I encourage you, make wise decisions. He says quite a few things about folly in verses 2 through 20. I'm just going to touch on some of these things. Look at verse, verses uh, 2 and 3. A wise man's heart inclines him, inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. As we uh, begin uh, to, to look at this, it might be tempting for some of you to say that, uh, uh, that this is some sort of prophetic political insight uh, from Solomon. In fact, I've had a number of you mention that to me even going into this week when you knew we were headed to this verse. But uh, that's not where he's going at all. And, and it's not even an a anti-left-handed person proverb. Uh, no. What, what, what is the right hand? What is the right arm? Well, we're told throughout Scripture, it's, it's the place of honor and privilege and protection. And the wisdom of the heart leads the wise man there, where a fool runs away from it. Biblically, the heart is not simply the seat of our emotions or our affections or our desires, like some of us may think it is at times. It, it's the seat of our, our thinking and of our will. It's, it's, the, it's the inner man that Solomon is speaking about here. And he's saying that the wise man's heart, his inner man, including his, his mind and his will and his affections, well, they lead him to a place of protection and honor and favor. Whereas a fool's heart is the thing that leads him astray. So son, the question for you this morning is which direction is your heart leading you? In verse 3, we see a fool's character shows all the time, even when he's walking along a road. See, this, that's a theme that we have been seeing throughout Ecclesiastes. You can tell a fool by his actions. In verses 5 through 7, he makes this point. You can find folly even in high places. You can find people in very powerful positions that are foolish. And he gives this illustration. I've seen fools riding on horses and wise men walking. It was an image that came out of the culture of the day. Only the wealthy and important rode horses then, and those who weren't wealthy or were not important were those that, that walked places. And he's seen the situation reversed where those filled with folly we're actually dwelling in the high places, and uh, just because uh, they had achieved some sort of worldly uh, goodness and worldly success does not mean that they were not still 
foolish. So we need to keep that in mind, that our, our position in life does not necessarily mean that we have avoided being foolish. In, in 8 through 11, he says, yes, folly has some severe consequences. Even though you may see folly in high places from time to time, as like you mentioned in 5 through 7, don't think that just because uh, so, some of the foolish things that we do, that there's not a, a problem with folly. And he gives some examples. In verses, verse 8, he says, one thing that you can tell about a fool is that sometimes he can be vindictive, but sometimes his own vindictiveness comes back to get him. He who digs a pit may fall into it. A serpent may bite him who digs through a wall. And those are strange things for us maybe that, to hear, but what he's saying is, here you have a man who's, who's digging a pit with the hope of having one of his uh, enemies fall into it, and instead he's the one that falls into it. You also have a man who's breaking into his neighbor's house, uh, just plowing through the, the wall, the clay wall there, and as he's sticking his hand through the wall, a serpent bites him. His own foolishness gets him in trouble. So let's remember that vindictiveness is just nothing more than another form of folly. In verse 9, Solomon speaks of the inherent dangers of even normal labor. It requires a person of wisdom and prudence to navigate these normal dangers in quarrying things such as stones and splitting logs. So in verses 10 and 11 indicate that the way that the fools are so quick to go about their work that they end up messing up the work and not doing it properly. They are so hasty in their work that they don't do adequate preparation for it. Before I was a pastor, I uh, used to manage different uh, housekeeping departments and hospitals. And I always would find myself telling people, work smarter, not harder. And, and, and that's where this idea, that's where that idea comes from, is, is right here out of Ecclesiastes, is that the a uh, wise person works smart, and the foolish person just ends up working harder. In 12 through 14, he says that folly shows itself even in our speech. You know, the, the, the character of one's speech is no doubt a, a real acid test of our wisdom. The preacher says our words can undo us. If you remember, as Dr. Weldon took us through the book of James, that's something that he pointed out to us over and over, is that our speech does matter. Foolish talk, Solomon says in verse 13, flows from the inner character, uh, from an inner character deficiency, and it results in an irrational morality. Nevertheless, in verse 14, the fool just, he just keeps on talking. He can't help himself. He just keeps on talking. We probably all have encountered people like that. Cannot help but to go on with his own foolish talk. In verse 15, folly shows itself in another form. It shows itself in the form of laziness. Here you have a, a guy, uh, the toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. He gets tired of doing his job. He gets so tired of doing it, he just quits doing it, and he quits doing it so long he forgets how to even get to the city. Now, in this day, 
Nobody forgot how to get to the city. But the foolish person's laziness can overwhelm them and really lead them down the wrong way. Finally, in 16 through 20, he comes back to speak again about folly and high places. And he says, yes, you see folly in high places, but let me tell you this. Woe to the nation that has folly in high places. It's a curse on the whole nation. Folks, that's a reminder to us that every single day we should be praying for our, our, our local, our state, our national leaders and our government. It, we should be praying all the time for those that are in authority. In verse 20, the warning is given, do not say anything you do not want others to hear. Never heard the phrase, a little bird told me? This is where this can, comes from. The wise person heeds this advice, but the fool, he's just going to keep on talking. You see, in all these ways, as, as we look at, at, at uh, chapter 10 here, he, he's giving us an anatomy of foolishness. So where does that leave us this morning? You know, Scott, just about every time you've left the house since you're a little boy, as you left the door, I would always say to you, make wise decisions. Make good decisions. Well, son, as we reflect on the preacher's observation, we must not forget what wisdom ultimately is. Remember, wisdom is not found in a classroom. Wisdom is not found in a textbook. I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to tell you, wisdom is not going to be found in the dorm room. But remember, wisdom is found in a person. It's found in Christ Jesus. In the light of Christ, we can make sense of all these observations that the preacher's been making in this passage this morning. The Apostle Paul says that the Jews demanded signs and the Greeks sought wisdom, but he and the apostles preached Christ crucified, which was a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. You see, God's foolishness is greater than all of man's wisdom. From man's perspective, life is unpredictable. But from God's perspective, everything is being done according to his holy and perfect plan. The believer who has found wisdom in Christ knows that his life is in the providential care of his heavenly father. So, Scotty, whether you experience joy, which I hope you have a lot of, or sorrow, which I know will be a part of your next four years, you'll never, ever, ever be forgotten by your heavenly father. I can say this to you with great confidence because we see the height of this in the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, where wisdom himself is crucified, but where the power of God is revealed. You know, it makes no sense 
from man's perspective, and yet it makes full sense from God's. If Christ is true and ultimate wisdom, then, then the only way that we can be wise would be seeking Christ. You see, son, if you wander or wander away from Christ, even the most inconsequential act of sin can become a fly in the ointment. I doubt that Adam and Eve had any idea the devastating effect of eating a piece of fruit, not only on themselves, but to the entire creation was going to cause. Only Christ, through the Spirit, guides us to fear the Lord. So you must cling fast to every word of Christ. And do not ever let go. The preacher says we must pursue wisdom at all cost. It does not matter if the wise are seemingly swept away like the wicked. It does not matter if the world uses our wisdom and then forgets to give us credit for it. It does not matter if the world hates us for our wisdom in the face of its own foolishness or spurns the wisdom of God in Christ as as being foolish. We must cling to Christ at all times. Scott, the pursuit of wisdom at all cost is my message to you today. And it's the message of the preacher to us. And it's the message of Jesus Christ to all of us. Remember, he said the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has, and he goes and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had, and he bought it. Pursuing the wisdom of Christ is our most important job. All you students, all you friends, Scott, I urge you, pursue wisdom at all cost. Because it's not a thing, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ. Friends, pray that Christ by the Holy Spirit will fuel the passion in your hearts to desire Christ in all things and to that you will have the mind of Christ, which is wisdom. Let's all pray that we'll continually cling to him so that we will not see things as the world sees them, but we'll see things as God sees them. For in our weakness and in our humility, that's where God manifests the glory of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for wisdom. Your Son, Jesus Christ. 
in whom him, he alone, Lord, can we make sense of a world that sometimes is very confusing. Father, do not let us be foolish people. Make us wise. Hold us tight, Lord, even when we want to get away. Hold us tight, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.